The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of its hosts, guests, or callers, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of WTBR-FM, its management, other producers, or sponsors. Welcome to Beyond. I'm your host, Beverly Prentice. Today, we have a story by Chris Barnum, B-A-R-N-H-A-M, sort code. After the crash, there's a hospital. I step into the street. Men march past in ragged procession. People around me wave flags. Women dart forward to pin flowers on the chests of the matchers. All the men my age are in the parade, while I look on among women, children, and old men. Why aren't you with them, matey? Doing your bit. A young woman confronts me, hands on hips. Here, have this. She pushes a white feather into my lapel. There's an angry mutter around me, a shift in the mood of the crowd. Heads turn my way. People mutter to their neighbors. I try to back away, but she grips my jacket. Let it go. A hand reaches between me and the white feather woman to slap her arm aside. Come with me. The new arrival hustles me off. Behind us, my antagonist shouts, Welcome to him. I prefer a real man. That sort that will win us this war. We hasten along a narrow street, leaving the noise behind. When we slow down and catch our breath, I get a look at my rescuer. She's dressed in a similar style to the others around us, except for her prominent earrings with large teardrop stones of amber. I've seen her before somewhere. What's going on? I say, where are we? She touches my lip and shakes her head, gesturing with her eyes at the people nearby, some of whom are staring. We have stopped in front of a tinted window, decorated in gilt lettering, with the words, The Admiral Nelson. Buy me a drink, the woman says. I don't have any money, I say, but I reach into my jacket pocket and find a leather wallet stuffed with unfamiliar banknotes. The woman raises an eyebrow and smiles. We step into the pub and sit at a sticky table with two halves of beer. I let out a long breath. What's going on? Well, it's London, and it's 1914, but then you knew that, she said. We don't have long, 
but I'll tell you what I know. Who are you? That's one of the things I don't know. Her brown eyes hold mine, challenging me to argue the absurdity of her words. Who are you? I open my mouth to answer, but I find nothing connected to it. A void where my name should be. I don't know. We won't have long, she says. We don't fit here. 1914? That's impossible. And yet here we are. Cheers. She lifts her glass and takes a long swig. I drink from mine, nutty and bitter, and as real as anything I've ever known, despite the impossibility of sitting in a pub with an oddly familiar stranger a century before I was born. What do you mean we don't have long? We'll be moved on. Always happens. I don't understand. Where were you before you were here? I was searching my memory like a groping in the dark. Sheets of rain over a dark road. Flames bloom from a car on its side. I skidded. What? I don't know. Fragments of memory slip away as I shake my head. Before this, I was in London on the night of the Great Fire, she says. So that was 1666. What? are you talking about? Before that, it was much earlier. There was a wooden bridge, guarded by soldiers in sandals and red tunics. I didn't stay long either time. I finished the beer. I want more, lots more. If I drink enough, this strange woman might start to make sense. Why did you approach me back there? I saw you were different. I recognized you. I'm about to ask her what she means, but I realize I know. She's different, too. In the street, everyone else was a fraction out of focus, as if the crowd scene was hastily sketched, with the two of us the only figures fully in definition. It's the same in this pub. Two men converse at the bar, but no clear words reach me. The bartender repeatedly polishes the same glass without ever replacing it on a shelf. What is this place? I turn back to the woman opposite me. It can't be 1914. If you say that out loud, you'll cut our time even shorter. What do you mean? Wherever I've been, it becomes obvious I don't fit in, she says. I mean, it's clear to me straight away, but the people around gradually pick up on it, like they did with you back in the square. After that, everything changes. As she speaks, the atmosphere shifts, like a door has opened and let in a drought. The man at the bar stares at us. The bartender stops rubbing the glass. Here we go. I knew it. The woman lifts her beer in salute. Look for me next time. Wait. It's too late. Sound flees the room, and the wall behind her fades into mist. I reach across the table for her hand, but she's further away, dwindling into darkness. The pub is gone, and even the London streets outside have disappeared into fog. Cold pain in my chest, a strap tied across it. I push open the car door. Rain slaps my face, bringing a smell of petrol and burning rubber. 
spilled diamonds of shattered glass on the road. Someone's moaning. I walk closer. It's okay. I kneel on the wet asphalt. Help's coming. Cold. Her eyes fix mine with an intensity that makes it impossible to look away. There's a clover leaf of blood on her forehead. Do I know you? I was in that car, I say. Are you hurt? I don't know. My clothes are wet. Rain or petrol or blood, I can't tell. My breath comes in installments. I think so. Don't leave me on my own. Before I can reassure her, everything freezes, pulsing gently like my computer screen when it's buffering. And then I'm somewhere else. The woman is gone along with my chest pain. A narrow street replaces the rain-soaked road. A thick fog tastes of coal dust, and the horse-drawn cart that passes makes barely any sound on the carpet of snow. A warm gust of air, smelling of coffee and breaking baking bread, billows from an open door. A sign on the pavement reads, Here today, Chaz Dickens reads his latest serial, I hand a penny to the man inside the door. Down a wood-paneled corridor and into a large hall, I slip into a seat just as lights dim and curtains part to reveal a low stage. A bearded man walks on stage and bows as people applaud. He wears a tweed waistcoat over a pink shirt and holds a sheaf of papers in his hand. He begins to read. Molly was dead, to begin with, he says. There is no doubt whatever about that. A touch on my shoulder heralds a familiar female voice behind my ear. We should talk. I follow her to an outer hall where white-aproned men serve mulled wine from copper urns. Have you remembered your name yet, she asks. I shake my head. Let's just choose, she says. I'll be Juliet. How about you? Why are we here? I ask. How do we get back to our own time? I don't think we can. She moves her head to swing hair away from her eyes, revealing the honey glow of her earrings. I don't understand. You said it was 1914, and now, and now we're listening to Dickens read A Christmas Carol, she said, which makes it the 1840s. It's not possible. Not in the universe we lived in, but we're not there anymore. Where are we? I think we died, she says. We leave before the second half. I saw Dickens read one of his books in public and walked out before the end, something to tell the grandchildren, if I have any grandchildren, if it was really Dickens. The question is how to make the best of it. Juliet walks with head bowed, keeping a close watch on where she treads. The snow is ankle deep and the cobbles beneath are slippery. Being dead, but not really dead. It doesn't look like we have much control over it, I say, randomly jumping around in time. Maybe it's not random. She stops walking, holding a finger up as if seeking permission to talk. Do you read much? What? 
I've read a lot of Dickens, a lot of classic literature. What about you? History, I say, my mind slipping back to the army recruits marching past in 1914. We walk in silence for several minutes. If this is a dream, it's convincing. My toes are cold inside my shoes, and the wind whips snowflakes into my eyes. A handsome cab clatters by, pulled by two horses, puffing vapor from their nostrils. You didn't give me a name, she says. I can't think of one. Well, if I'm going to be Juliet, she says. She has a nice smile, but I'm distracted from it by a man on the opposite pavement staring at us. Beyond him, a woman in a dark shawl turns and looks our way, as if we've just called her name. I think it might be happening again, I say. What? Oh, Juliet sees what I see, and there's that sudden drop in sound again, as if a switch has been thrown. She touches my sleeve, and then she's gone. The snow's gone, too. I'm back on the rain-soaked road beside my wrecked car and the injured woman. She's in a bad way, and I'm not too good either. Ambulance is coming. I talk to distract myself from the pain, and because her eyes keep going unfocused, and I think she needs to stay conscious. They'll take care of you. Were you in the crash? Her voice is thin, as if she's trying to talk without taking in a breath. Yes, there was a truck. I crane around, but there's no truck. Just my crashed car and the one that must be hers, burning on its side. He must have driven off. He'll be in trouble, she says. Sure, not as much trouble as we're in. Don't leave me. I won't. Talk to me. Were you on your way home? Yes, from work. Anyone waiting for you? Husband? Boyfriend? Not at the moment. Looking forward to anything special this evening? Same as ever, she whispers. Dinner, read a book. Got any recommendations? Depends on what you like, she says. I'm reading poetry right now. Wordsworth. What's your name? I never hear her answer. A swirling clump of rain-sodden wind steals her words and shuts my eyes. Her grip on my hand evaporates. When I open my eyes again, it's daytime. The rain has gone along with the dark streets, the cars, and the injured woman. I'm on a narrow road between trees. On the right, a gap reveals the mirrored surface of a lake, a mountain rising beyond it. There are voices ahead, and around a bend I encounter a group of hikers. Three men, two women, clustered by the side of the road, deep in conversation. One of the men, tall and stooped, is writing in a notebook, glancing from the page to the crop of daffodils beside the road. Another man argues with him about something, but the man with the notebook ignores him. The two women step away, and one looks up and sees me. Good day, stranger, she says. We can't go on meeting like this. It seems we must, she said. There's worse things. Look at the view. She waved a hand at the lake and sky and mountain behind her. 
Will I wake up soon in a padded cell? Silly. Maybe you should make the most of the moment. Look behind me. What do you see? Three men arguing over some flowers. Recognize any of them? They all wear a caricature of a 19th century hiker's outfit. Woolen trousers tucked into knee-length socks. Tweed jacket or wool sweater. Wide-brimmed hats. I shake my head. What year is this now? 1802, she says, which means the one with the notebook hasn't yet written his famous daffodil poem. We're witnessing the moment of inspiration. This is insane, I say. How do we get back to where we belong? I've got some thoughts on that. Juliet steps forward and links her arm in mine, calling back over her shoulder. Look, Dorothy, what a surprise to meet my friend, Mr. Romeo. Juliet whispers to me, just go with it, okay? Maybe the lake poets will invite us for tea. They do. At a cottage half a mile down the lane, an apple-checked woman greets us, Mary Wordsworth. She hangs a metal kettle over the fire and arranges fresh scones on a tray. I sit in a corner, and the three men ignore me, hunched over their mugs of tea, arguing back and forth. It's warm by the fire, and the scones smell like a childhood memory of baking perfection. Don't fall asleep. Who knows where you'll wake up? I open my eyes to find Juliet beside me, sitting on a three-legged stool. I see why you like this, I say. It's your literary fantasy come to life. If you say that out loud, you'll spoil it. Spoil what? We're adrift in time, tumbling around in history, not fitting in anywhere. Maybe it's better than being properly dead. But it's not real, is it? Look at them. I gesture with my eyes at the bickering poets behind her. I hear their voices, but none of the words are clear, as if they're beyond a perspex screen. They're like players at the back of the stage, faking a conversation, while other actors speak their lines. Only you and I are real. We're not real either, Juliet says sadly. But if this is all there is... Tea with the lake poets isn't so bad. A flicker of light makes us both turn. The poets are frozen in silence. Dorothy pauses in the doorway, mouth open as if to speak. Behind her, a bird is pinned in place, motionless against the sky. Now you have done it. Juliet's words echo as if she's talking to me across a large hall. I was enjoying this, she grabs my hand. Listen, try try this. Think of somewhere you want to be, a time and place. Imagine you're there. That's easy. I want to be home. Just not where we came from. Juliet's words fade. The poets behind her ripple like they're painted on a windblown cloth. We can't go there. Why not? She doesn't answer. Wordsworth's cottage is gone, taking Juliet with it. And I'm sitting on a dark, wet road beside the dying woman who never tells me her name. 
Stay with me, I say. Too cold. I need to keep her talking, as if that will hold everything at bay. Keep her alive until the paramedics come. Nothing in my life ever felt so important, although I don't know why. I've never met her before, and I have no idea who she is. Maybe if I keep her from dying, I won't have to think about how badly I'm hurt. The pain in my chest is an animal clawing its way out. A gust of wind flings in my eyes, focusing and forcing them closed. When I open them, everything is normal again. No dying woman, no rain, no wrecked vehicles. I drive along a busy city street and turn into an underground parking lot. I leave the car and take the elevator up to the eighth floor, where I walk between rows of desks, feeling as if I know where I'm going. Floor-to-ceiling windows displays a view across the river to glass towers. People at desks nod as I pass, but nobody speaks. I find an empty workspace, and I sit. Time passes. I recall no details of the work I do. The morning is gone before I knew it, and I'm out on the street where I buy a sandwich from a busy deli. Taxis pass on the road. People in business suits brush past. Phones press to their ears. I can stand and let the city flow around me. This is where I belong, the world I'm used to. I couldn't tell you my name, nor those of my co-workers, nor where I will go after work, but it feels like my place. Victorian London, the poets by the lake, the dying woman on a wet road, it's all fading away, and I'm happy to let it. I go back to my desk, and hours pass while I do whatever I do. This isn't exactly where I belonged before the crash, but it feels right, like I fit. I have no interaction with the people around me, but I dissolve into the comforting office mind, as if we are all extras at the back of a stage. If I let my mind empty, I can scan into this facsimile of a life I might once have had, and that'll be fine. You don't belong here. It's a whisper in my ear, so gentle that at first I don't notice anyone speaking. An arm reaches across my desk and a finger taps a group of numbers on the computer screen. You know what this is? I read the words above the numbers. It's a sort code. What does that do? Juliet leans across from the next desk. Why did I not see her there before? Tell me about sort codes. Numbers that identify a bank so money goes to the right place, otherwise a payment could go adrift, be paid into the wrong account. Remind you of anything? Her brown eyes match the amber earrings. They're trying to find out where we fit, she says, to sort us into the right time and place. Those others weren't right. This is closer. Who are they? I don't know. She looks upward, lost in thought. Imagine an exhibition, a massive museum of human life and history. Everything's there, 
every civilization, every culture, back through time. We fit in somewhere. Someone's trying to us to drift to different slots to see where we fit. Who's this someone? Maybe not anyone. It could be a computer, an algorithm, trying to match us with our proper surroundings. Maybe you need to talk to a doctor. I want her to go away. I'm fine at this desk. It's quiet here, and no one does bother me, at least until Miss Nosy popped up again. I need to get on with my work. It's not your work, she says. You can't stay here. You'll become like them. She waves a hand at the room around us. Everyone has their heads down, not noticing our argument. Tell me their names, she says. Pardon me? Your co-workers. Name one of them. Keep your voice down. A couple of heads have lifted to stare. I search my mind for a name. I must know some of my office mates. You'll spoil it. Spoil what? You don't fit here. Don't say that. A woman with glasses and a dark bob haircut frowns at me, then speaks to her neighbor. A small group has appeared at the door from the elevators, moving our way. Juliet leans down and slaps her palm on my desk. Wake up! It was you, wasn't it? She says. In the other car, after that lorry hit me, you were there on the road before I... Don't say it. We're being sorted from place to place, time to time, she says. Maybe this happens to everyone when they die, or maybe it's just us. If we reach the right slot for us, maybe we blend in and that's that. We'll be like a stuffed bear in a museum or a live bear in a zoo. We'll be these nameless people. Listen to what you're saying. I just want her to shut up. Half a dozen people are moving our way and no one is working anymore. All eyes are on us. No, you listen. What happens if we don't get sorted into the right place and time? Is that what you want? Something is preventing us from fitting in, keeping us in the sort of pattern. You can't know all this, I say. We're linked because you were there when I died. I died too. It's only when I speak the words that the truth of it unfolds inside me. The wrecked car, the rain, the pain in my chest. You know we don't fit in here, she says, glancing behind her at the faceless crowd converging on us. Yes, and once again we're gone. This time there's no wrecked car, no crash scene, just a lurch and a flicker of light before I'm on the back of a horse, trotting along a cobbled road between buildings. The air is cold with a seam of wood smoke and roast meat. I guide the horse through a gate into the courtyard. A man in a dirty tunic holds the horse's bridle as I dismount. Pulling my cloak around me, I stride toward wooden doors patterned with metal studs. Fat flakes of snow glide down. The doors open as I approach, and a woman gestures me inside. 
Just in time, she says, taking my cloak and hat. There is a space for you near the high table on the left. Noise and heat hit me like a fist. Four long tables are arranged perpendicular to the top table, which is on a raised platform, so all can see what the important diners are eating. The air is thick with the scent of hundreds of candles. There must be over a hundred people at the tables, many looking like they've already drained a large part of the Lord's wine cellar. I slip into a seat and search for the wine before me. I catch the eye of the woman opposite me. She smiles and raises her goblet. I knew you'd be here. Her earrings are drops of honey in the candlelight. I know this isn't the right... Best not to speak about it, she interrupts. I like it here. Let's make the most of it. I'll do my best. I raise my goblet, and we both drink. None of this can be real, but the wine fills my mouth with fruit and an earthy undertone so rich that I can taste the hillside where the grapes grew. We eat and drink for what feels like hours. Despite the noise in the hall, nothing cuts across my conversation with Juliet. Other diners take no interest in us. We're in our own little bubble, surrounded by chatter and occasional bursts of laughter at jokes inaudible to us. An outbreak of singing comes from a table across the hall, followed by applause all around. This is fun, isn't it? Juliet says. I can think of worse places to be. Do you dance? Two tables across the hall have been moved aside and musicians are setting up. Maybe I do, I say. Let's find out. She leads me to the open patch of floor. Three men holding stringed instruments launch into a tune. Juliet clasps one of my hands and holds my other elbow as we begin to dance. Her hair smells of lemon and chestnuts. A handful of other couples are already in motion, and it's surprisingly easy to copy them. I observe how the others move and take care not to hold Juliet too close, despite a powerful urge to pull her tight to me. What's your name, really? I speak softly enough for only her to hear. Juliet will do. Were you married, you know, before? Once. Not for a while. I was alone, too. My words dislodge tiny shards of memory, driving home late, microwave meals in front of the TV, weekends when I couldn't get out of bed. Did you drive that road a lot? All the time. Her eyes gleam in the candlelight. I won't miss that, or much else. It's a shame we never met, except, you know, when... Juliet's finger on my lips cut me off. Let's not spoil this, she says. Make it last. We dance on in silence. The other revelers ignore us, which I take to be a good sign. At the end of our third dance, the troupe strikes up a livelier tune, which one of them singing a ballad about a military campaign that prompts bursts of cheering from the hall. Juliet and I step to the side of the floor, wondering whether to return to our table. What happens when the banquet is over? I ask, assuming we're still here. 
I arrived on horseback, but I have no idea where from. Juliet watches my face for a moment, chewing her lower lip. Then she places a hand on my chest and says, Follow me. She turns and walks around the edge of the dance floor and out of the hall. Watching her walk ahead of me, an image comes unbidden. Juliet on the wet road, head cradled in my arms, blood on her face, and her eyes unmoored. I never met her before the crash, but the recollection of her slipping away clutches a cold fist in my chest. She said something just before the last ragged breath rattled in her throat. I don't remember what it was, why it was important. Keep up, she says over her shoulder, pulling aside a velvet curtain and leading me into a corridor lit by torches in wall brackets. Do you know where you're going? Don't ask me how. After a couple of twists and turns, we enter a room lit and heated by logs burning in a chest-high grate containing little furniture beyond the curtained four-poster bed in the middle of the floor. Who knows how long we have, Juliet says as she leads me by the hand toward the bed. Or where we'll be after this. As it turns out, we have long enough to lie entwined afterward, sweat cooling on our skin. Juliet's head is on my chest when I say, I know you don't think we should say it out loud, but what did you mean when you said about us being sorted? Juliet moves slightly, a hint of a shrug. We're being shuffled about by some kind of celestial computer. A heavenly algorithm trying to slot us into our rightful place. And time. Have you got a better explanation? Juliet sits up, pulling the quilted blanket around her. After the heat of our encounter, the air now feels cold. I haven't got any explanation. And yet, here we are. She gestures with a hand to indicate the bedroom, the castle, and the feast beyond. Imagine this, she says, sitting up straighter, her eyes alight with excitement. Someone, somewhere, I don't know who, Maybe people far in the future, maybe aliens who've found our planet. Someone's trying to piece together the whole of history. Why? Who knows, she says, for a museum, for amusement, whatever. They dig into history and pluck out people from the past. Maybe they can do that with everyone, or maybe just some, like us. Either way, we've been salvaged. And this algorithm is trying to sort us into our correct place, using fragments of knowledge and memory from our brains or whatever. When we don't fit, we get sorted somewhere else. If we land somewhere we fit, maybe we're just a museum exhibit. Even if you're right, I say, this can't go on forever. Why not? There's a lot of history. If we carry on not fitting in, Maybe we just keep going. Or we wind up really dead, I say. Nowhere, no time, nothing. Let's try to avoid that, Juliet says. Let's keep doing what we're doing. Do our best to adapt to the places we're sorted to, but don't completely blend in. How can we sustain that? 
What's the alternative? We're dead. Besides, it's fun so far. Next thing we know, we might be in a London during the Black Death, I say, or a bomb during the Blitz. You're a chief soul for someone who's just slept with a princess. You're a princess here? I lie back again, enjoying the pressure of Juliet's head on my chest. I can pretend, she says. Heavy footsteps clump along the passage beyond the bedroom door and come to a halt. Light in the room flickers. Juliet watches the door for a moment before lifting her face to me. I don't want this to end. Her eyes glitter in the firelight. Before I can respond, someone thumps the door from outside. Juliet and I both flinch. I look for my clothes, feeling suddenly very naked. Another heavy blow at the door, too loud for a fist. I picture someone striking the wood with the pommel of a sword. Juliet slips out of the bed and wraps a blanket around her. Her earrings catch the light in two beads of gold on her neck. Who's there? She steps toward the door, but it's already clear it doesn't matter who's outside. Juliet freezes in mid-step, one foot above the carpet. The door behind her has receded into the distance. The light in the room flares purple. I have time only to form the thought that I have never been happier anywhere than in this room in the past hour, followed by a splash of fear that I'll never see her again. And we're gone. Orange curtains of rain sweep across the street light. My legs are wet and I can smell petrol and blood. They'll be here soon, I say, but nothing moves on the road. The flames on the woman's car have diminished. Don't let me go, she whispers. I shift position, lowering myself to the asphalt so that I can hold her closer. I wince in pain and she notices. You're hurt. It's okay. We'll both be fine when the medics get here. You're sweet, she says. I can't feel my legs, and I'm cold inside. Her eyes drift upward, and I fear she's fading away. Tell me more about the books you love. I'm desperate to keep her alert, keep her present. All sorts, she sighs. I could lose myself in books. If you could lose yourself in one now, what would it be? I squeeze her cold hand and scan the road for the flicker of blue lights. So many, she says. In London with Dickens or the lakes with Wordsworth? She coughs and flinches in pain. Or there's Jane Austen? Imagine yourself there, I say. Take your mind off the pain. That's gone now. Her words are like leaves tapping an autumn window. Lime Regis, she says, by the sea. You'd love it there. That's the last thing she says, apart from when the ambulance come and they deliberately pull me away from her and her face twists and she says, stay with me, and then goes quiet. After that, everything gets blurry. Lights above flash past and someone in a medical mask leans over me. Someone out of sight shouts to people to get back, and I lurch to the side as the trolley I'm on strikes plastic double doors, which part around me. Leave me, I want to say, but my mouth won't move. She's hurt worse than I am. 
I wasted all my life not meeting her. Now I'm losing her again. There's another trolley in here. A nurse glances at me when I come through the doors as she pulls a sheet up over the face of the woman lying there. I close my eyes, thinking of her last words. Clumps of wildflower and rosemary tumble down a hill above a strip of beach. A cool breeze rolls off the sea and up the slope toward me, prompting memories of sunny days and salt drying on my skin. It's late in the afternoon, and the distant figure walking away toward the water is stalked across the sand by a skeletal shadow. I reach the beach and strike across it. The woman ahead of me climbs a set of stone steps onto the harbor wall, where she turns and watches me approach, the low sun blood red behind her. When I draw near, she says, These are the very steps that Louisa Musgrove fell down in Jane Austen's novel Persuasion. Is that so? I start to climb. I'll be careful. Or maybe it was Meryl Streep in a movie. Juliet shrugs. Or perhaps it's all just fiction. Who knows what's real and what's not? She's wearing a blue gown with a white lace trim. She holds a folded parasol. When I reach the top of the stairs, she steps close and whispers, This is as real as it gets, as real as anything's ever been. I know, but don't let them hear you. I speak the words to the top of her head as she slips into my embrace. We stand this way for a long time as the sun sinks lower toward the sea and waves gossip across the harbor wall. You helped me, she murmurs, when I died. Yes. You were dying, too. Does that mean we're stuck together? Fine with me, she looks up at last. Shall we walk to the end of the cob? Everybody does. If it's good enough for Jane Austen. Juliet links her arm through mine as we stroll along the stone brink water. The sun kisses the horizon, spreading the orange hem of its skirt as it settles onto the sea. Gulls soar overhead, and the wind off the sea blows Juliet's hair across her face. At the end of the massive wall, the sea surrounds us, slapping the stone below our feet. I imagine Juliet's celestial algorithm whirring away, unseen and unheard, preparing to slot us into place here or pluck us through space and time to fit us in elsewhere. I pull Juliet close, my arms around her shoulders. After the crash, there's a hospital. I hope you enjoyed that story, sort Code by Chris Barnum. If you like fantasy and magic and all that good stuff, I have a book that you might be interested in. It's called For Love of Magic by Simon R. Green from Bay and Books. 
I don't know Simon R. Green at all, but I couldn't help but feel that after he finished his novel Jekyll and Hyde, Inc., he thought to himself that's an interesting concept, and then considered another approach to the material, whereupon he sat down and wrote For the Love of Magic. In Jekyll and Hyde, Inc., which was reviewed before, he gave us a world where magic and magical beings hid from the modern world by becoming underground criminal organizations. It was an action-packed and pretty brutal story. For the Love of Magic takes a different view, giving us a real sense of wonder in its pages, which is odd because there's just as much action in it, but it somehow feels different, less brutal, and I'm not actually sure why this is. Our first-person point of view is narrated by Jack Damon, is his job, as he puts it, to diffuse the supernatural equivalent of unexploded bombs, all the weird artifacts and infernal devices left behind by forgotten civilizations and peoples we're better off without. I protect the present from the sins of the times past. Or, as Green puts it at the beginning of the book, history has been rewritten to take all the magic out of the world but not all of it has been erased. Jack's job is to deal with those leftover bits, which is what brings him to London's Tate Gallery, where a newly discovered painting of a fairy war by Richard Dadd seems to have swallowed up a number of the gallery's patrons. That's where he meets Amanda Felding, a specialist in Dadd's art. The next thing he knows, the pair are on a jaunt through the past. Amanda is trying to show Jack how history has been rewritten to create a world without the legends and magic it needs to flourish, introducing him to famous figures from myth whose stories have been diminished by the Department for Uncanny Inquiries. Budeka, Beowulf, King Arthur, and his knights, Merlin, Robin Hood, all the while they're being pursued by agents of some secret masters who don't want the world changed and are working toward a final confrontation at, where else, Stonehenge. For Love of Magic ends up being a delightful romp through the mythologies of the British Isles, depicting the mythological beings as everyday humans who are elevated by their nobility and their ability to bring good into the world against impossible odds. I liked the characters, the writing. Actually, I liked everything about the book. And it's For Love of Magic by Simon R. Green. And I shall leave you there. Please, if you'd like to leave me a message, go online, get out your email, drop a line to Beyond. 3x5 at gmail.com. I am really hoping I get calls, or not calls, but emails from people so that I know how bad this is or how good this is or whatever you think of it. I'll be waiting. <laughs>